production. Do you want 2023 to be the year you bring your dreams and desires into reality? As you may know, manifestation has been a big part of my practice for a long time now, and through my research and study, I have developed a manifestation course just for you. This course is broken up into six immersive audio modules with printable worksheets. I cover topics like unlocking your emotions so you can receive what you truly desire, understanding the quantum field and how to connect to it, letting go of control and resistance to set manifestation into motion, and embracing and embodying gratitude in order to bring your dreams and desires into reality. This course covers all my teachings and I feel so honoured to be able to share them with you. Manifest Your Greatness is available for purchase at the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com. Psychotherapist and New York Times bestselling author Esther Perel is recognised as one of today's most insightful and original voices on modern relationships. Esther's perspective on love, sexuality, eroticism and union is unique and practically helpful. Her wisdom shared on relationships and how they can become severed and restored brings light to what can be hard to face. Esther says the quality of our relationships determines the quality of our lives. The conversation of this hour reflects on eroticism, the difference between love and desire, what makes relationships last, and what drives happy couples to infidelity. I learned after 10 years of working primarily with couples and and families with infidelity, the fact that it happens in good relationships too, that sometimes when a person goes elsewhere, they're not just going elsewhere because they want to leave the person that they are with, but sometimes it's because they want to leave the person that they have themselves become. That woman that is at home, that has been caring for their children, that is just the mother, the wife, sometimes finds herself one day yearning to once again bring back the woman behind the mother. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Esther has a new card game out called Where Should We Begin, designed to unlock the storyteller within. Her books include The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity, Mating in Captivity and others. At its core, this conversation is a tribute to the wonder of relationships and human behaviour. It's heartfelt, deep, wise and gives praise to the greatest thing we will never understand and the only thing we will ever need, love. It was an absolute honour to sit down face-to-face with Esther to record it. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Esther Farrell, welcome. You are here off the back of a sold-out tour in Australia, which is amazing. And I like to start at the beginning. I want to hear a bit about your upbringing and the fact that you grew up with two parents that were Holocaust survivors. And I'd, I'd like to know how that experience was for you and what you learnt from them. 
Hmm. That would be a biography. <laughs> That's not just one question. I think that there are two primary lessons. If I think of what my, the experience of my parents, who they were the survivors, but they were also the sole survivors of their entire family. And so to speak, they had a five-year lockdown in a concentration camps. And they gave me a lot of lessons about how one maintains oneself in a literal lockdown. That was one of the big things, is how do you face hardships? And what do you do to maintain a sense of aliveness and vibrancy and hopefulness? And how do you stay connected to your imagination and to the spirit when everything else is dehumanizing? And it doesn't have to be taken in its extreme version, but it is the permission to experience pleasure in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of misery, and the importance of experiencing pleasure or the erotic, curiosity, nature, art, and the deep ties with other people that were offsetting the cataclysmic experiences that they were having. So that was one major piece. And the second one was that it's the quality of your relationships that determines the quality of your life. They had nobody. They had nobody. They were each the youngest one of nine children in a family and one of seven. So they had to rebuild community, literally, and really learn to create what we today call family of choice. But that was done without the same name, and that's what we had. And so I think that my parents were deeply interested in relationships, and so am I. Did they ever talk to you about how they moved through that trauma of having their families die and then having that isolation of thinking, who do I have around me? And then obviously they met each other after they left the camps. How did they move through that? with each other? So I was very lucky that I had parents who were storytellers. Yeah. And they also were very good curators. They knew to tell the stories that we could tolerate listening. Mm. And they did that for themselves, probably not even intentionally, but very adaptively. And they did that for their children and for anyone else who was interested in them. Because they were characters, figures that people really wanted to hear from. And what my parents understood naturally, my parents and their entire cohort, is that collective trauma, because they had gone through a collective trauma, it wasn't just an individual trauma, demanded collective resilience. You don't go through this alone. Mm. You find other people who went through the same or similar experiences. You find other survivors. You find rituals that you will create with those survivors. You find ways to commemorate and to bring memory and to keep the dead into your memory and into the public space. And all of this was done without any therapy. Mm. Very few survivors went to therapy. But they did quite well. The first thing they did, by the way, is have children. Because if you had a child, you were still human. It meant you could still procreate. It, it was a fundamental of the expression of your humanity, was to have children. Some of them were better parents than others, no doubt. But all in all, it's a group that managed to rebuild, to move to another country, to learn new languages, to raise their children in a foreign place, to have jobs. But they did it very much in a collective way. They came together with other people who experienced the same thing. Um, and 
everything has to be learned. Mm. Not everything, but so many things have been learned from watching the way that this particular group of survivors of a genocide dealt. It was applied to Cambodia, it was applied to Armenia, it was applied to many other places afterwards. And today, to many of the survivors of all the big catastrophes going on. By the way, the word trauma was never mentioned. That was not in the vocabulary. What we went through is indescribable. Nobody could understand it. We went through terrible things. There was no need to describe in utter details all the terrible things. Um, we have a, there's so much we can learn from the way that particular group did it. And by the way, most importantly, it was the first group that coined the term adult trauma. Really? Before World War II, we never thought of trauma as something that can happen in your adult life. Freudian theory posited that this was something you experienced in the first five years of mm. your life. It's all in childhood. The idea that actually you may have had a perfectly fine life and then one day you have a traumatic event that leaves you with scars for the rest of your life, that began after World War II. Wow, isn't that so interesting? It's funny, I was talking to someone the other day, we were actually talking about you and I said that your parents were Holocaust survivors and my grandpa was a Holocaust survivor, also in Poland and hid in, in the forest and has his own story as they all do. I've interviewed on the podcast a Holocaust survivor, she's 91 now, mm -hmm. one of the happiest people I've ever met and it's so interesting how we can look to them and I suppose in psychotherapy and you have the work of Viktor Frankl and all these amazing people and how we can use that trauma in looking at today's world and how we move through certain emotions and how we deal with pain and these people have been through so much but it's really interesting to see how a lot of them prevailed and did in such a graceful way and I remember this one woman saying to me, I don't hate anyone, I would never hate. I think what they did wasn't right, but how could I have hate in my heart? And I just think that's such an incredible thing. The definition of the word trauma really shifts. When you look at survivors or victims of torture, political violence, war, psychosocial trauma, disasters, pandemics, you look at the experience of trauma as a cataclysmic event mm. that leaves you powerless in the moment and thereby you freeze and your reaction to that event is what becomes the basis for PTSD. It's not the event itself that is the trauma, it's your reaction to it and the powerlessness, the frozenness because something is overwhelming like those major events. In the recent years, we have redefined trauma as developmental trauma, primarily issues that have happened to you in childhood. And they are often more individual-based trauma. And that's a very different definition. So we're using the same word, but it actually exists now on a continuum. In both cases, the term that is not often used enough because we are very much invested in studying post-traumatic stress disorder. And we don't spend enough time thinking about post-traumatic growth. Mm. What actually does help? How do people come out of it? And what is the power of social connection for that more than anything else? You can do all the self-regulations and all the meditation. All of that is very useful and important. But fundamentally, the power of social connection is the most important thing because trauma is about disconnection. It's about massive loss, 
and unresolved grief. And so the reconnecting is part of the repair. How come you think some people move through ah, trauma? That's in, the million dollar yeah, question. In a way that they can deal with it and others can't. Is it to do with the way that they're brought up? Is it... It's really the million-dollar question, honestly. Why in the same family do two people go through the same events and one person manages to use it as the source of their impetus and their drive in life and the other person gets completely crushed by it? You know, there's a beautiful project in the prisons in the United States where they bring in CEOs and heads of companies to go and spend time with inmates lifelong inmates. And one of the most interesting findings about what is the difference between those who are behind bars and those who are not, and who could have been, who also almost ran over somebody, who also had car accidents, who also were way too drunk, who also... And the big distinguisher, discerner, is having had someone who believed in you, the mentor the teacher, the coach, somebody who took a special interest in you and gave you constantly a different picture of yourself than the one that you were holding. Isn't that interesting? That is one of the most interesting things. So anytime somebody has made it, whatever the made it means, they were able to love again, to create family, to have friends, to have a job, to believe in something, you know, um, to create. I think one of the first questions I ask is, who was there for you? Mm. Was there someone outside of the family system, for that matter? A neighbor, an aunt, a grandparent? And yesterday, at the event here in Melbourne, we had one of the card questions of where should we begin? And it was a conversation that you could have again. And so many people would probably say my grandmother or my grandfather. The person who impacted my life that doesn't even know it. The person to whom I have a big thank you. The person that held me in esteem when I didn't have enough of it for myself. Mm. That is such a big thing, isn't it? And I reflect on that as well, being in the line of work I'm in. I always think of those people that saw something in me when maybe others didn't Mm -hmm. see anything or when I felt that I was at my lowest and they believed in me and that belief of someone else having that in you allows you to move forward. And did you have someone like that in your life? I probably have had more than one. Yeah. I've had teachers, mentors, friends, my brother, my husband for sure. Yes, I always had this image of an elevator safety shaft that everybody, when they fall, because we will fall, has this scoop underneath that makes sure that you can fall, but you won't hit the ground. And it's that little space between the fall and the crash Mm. that is so important. Who makes it? It depends how well you navigate the institutions. The one who makes it is sometimes the one who managed to stay under the radar in school. The outwardly aggressive often makes it less than the much more collapsed 
an implosive one rather than the explosive one because it's less disruptive in a classroom. Yeah. If once you start to be kicked out of the classroom, then you sometimes it becomes a snowball effect of all the other institutions where you won't last. So being able to navigate the institutions that socialize us throughout our lives is probably an important one too in terms of who makes it. It's multifactorial, mm-hmm. but it ultimately is one of the most mysterious questions. Mm-hmm. Why this person came out of this stronger and the other one came out of this broken. Mm. That's so fascinating. You obviously got into psychotherapy, but you studied theatre for a while. What made you move into wanting to do psychotherapy? I, I studied both from the beginning. Yeah. I, was an inch, I, I did theatre as a teenager throughout my adolescence and I was deeply interested in psychology from yes. my adolescence on, starting at age 14. So I was interested in education because I hated school. I hated the way they treated us <laughs> in school as students. I hated the whole repressive system that I was in. So I got to reading everything about alternative education. From there, I went into psychology. So I've always had a deep interest in both. I yes. studied psychodrama, which was a way of finding ways to use theater. I understood Greek theater and the power of it. Mm-hmm. And I understood that much of our life is a theater. It's a stage. We perform. We perform roles. So psychodrama became a very good structure for me to integrate the two. And I became, I always thought I would do both for yes. some reason. When I came to New York, I realized that I was going to have an easier time becoming a therapist than becoming an actress. Mm. I didn't want to be a waitress. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, obviously relationships is a big thing to you and you talk a lot about eroticism and you do it in such a beautiful way. And you say, which I love, eroticism is our life force. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit more and explore what that actually means. The typical definition of eroticism in modern times is sexual. Mm. Exciting, turn on, a repertoire of sexual techniques, urges. But there is a long-standing mystical definition of eros as life force, that which makes you feel alive, vibrant, energized, vital. That which allows you to deal with deadness, death, catastrophe, loss. And um, it is too bad that the world has been narrowed. Mm. Of course, eroticism is what makes sex great, but it is also what makes life worth living. Yes. It's the ability in the middle of grief to actually still experience love, connection, hope. Otherwise, what are we holding on to? Mm. So I have really wanted to use that term, and I discovered it when I was writing Mating in Captivity, because... I realized slowly that I was not so interested in sex, per se, sexuality. What people do, if they have sex, how often, how hard, how many orgasms, so now all yeah. the measurable stuff, that I was really interested in the experience. In the, the, and that eroticism is really defined by the, the central agent is your imagination, not your, what you do. Mm. You can do sex and feel nothing. 
Women have done that for centuries. I loved when I was at your talk last night how you got everyone to stand up and there was one bit where you asked, has anyone ever had consensual sex and that they enjoyed it when they didn't get much out of it? I think there was not a person sitting. Everyone was standing when you said that. Right. That in itself could be a whole evening, yeah. right? The amount of stories that are behind that. And it wasn't just women, and it wasn't non-consensual, yeah. and it was maybe consensual but not wanted or not clearly wanted, or in any case, it was really lackluster. Yes. That, that is incredible. incredible. How many people will have a sexual life that is not nearly what they would hope for it to be, or sometimes they don't even know what it could be. Yes. So eroticism is the poetry of sex. Eroticism is when Octavio Paz talks about it, the senses become servants mm. to our imagination. It's when you can see the invisible and hear the inaudible. Mm. Or Audrey Lorde talks about eroticism as an act of self-preservation and political warfare. It's extremely important. There's a lot of it that is subsumed under it. And it's an intelligence that is cultivated. We are all born sensuous and we become erotic. We learn what are the ways that we stay connected to life, to others, to hope, to nature, to art, to curiosity. Everyone, their trajectory for that. But that is the force. And it is the opposite. It's what Freud used to call eros and thanatos. Mm. There was a moment yesterday in the Melbourne talk that was also very powerful where one man talked about his trauma experience with sexual abuse. And... Too often, when we talk about trauma, we are dealing with the actual experience of the event itself, but we don't talk about the rehabilitation. It's one thing to take an arm that was broken, put it in a cast, then take off the cast, but you still need to retrain the arm to be used. Yes. That's the erotic recovery. That arm has to come back to life. It needs to reintegrate the body and then the world. That's eroticism. Erotic recovery is really core to our ability to sustain ourselves. Do you think having a sexual relationship is a must? I mean, there are so many people who could say that they're in love with each other, but they don't have sex anymore. They may have had sex to have kids. As time passes, they don't have sex. Is it fundamental in a successful relationship to keep on having sex? Depends for whom. Mm. <laughs> for some people, not at all. Yeah. There is a wonderful way to have an affectionate, companionate relationship. There's also a wonderful way to have multiple friendships with whom you have deep love and intimacy and no primary romantic relationship. Yeah. That's not one way to live life. It depends for whom. I would say we can live without sex, but we can't live without touch. Mm. Yes. If we don't get touched, we become irritable, we become aggressive, we become depressed. Touch is essential. And if it's not from a person, it will be from a pet, but we need touch. Mm. Do we need the sensuality of touch? Yes, probably if you watch the way people stroke the pet, the cat or the dog, you will see tremendous sensuality. This is sexual or erotic if you prefer. Mm. If you see how people hold little babies, it is erotic. It is sensual. It doesn't mean it's sexual, but it, make, it is vibrant. It is alive. It is connective. There is pleasure in it. The pleasure of holding this fragile little human being in your arms. I think that your question 
needs to be redefined. Mm. Before I answer it, I would have to ask, what do you mean by sex? Can people live without sex means what? Can they live without heteronormative penetrative sex? Yeah. That ends with an orgasm and proves something has happened? Yes, of course they can. Yeah. Do people have a sexuality in their lives no matter what because they have a body, because they have genitals, because they can touch themselves, because they can take care of themselves, because others can please them? Then that's a very different kind of question. Mm. And still, you can live a beautiful life that touches on this but doesn't really necessarily have a three-course meal. What is the difference between love and lust? Love and desire, yeah. they relate, but they also conflict. Mm. And that's where the mystery of eroticism lies. You can desire without love, and you can love without desire. So this goes back to your question, can you live without, uh, you know, living in a sexualized relationship? By the way, it works quite well if both people are similar. Yes. The problem occurs because one person wants a very different experience than the other. But love, love comes with a sense of responsibility. Love comes with a sense of worry, of caretaking, of anxiety for the well-being of the other person. Desire needs freedom to thrive. Mm. It needs to be carefree. It needs to be unselfconscious. It needs to be able to momentarily enter inside oneself, which is one of the reasons why sometimes it's a challenge for women, because they find themselves too often in the role of caretaker, mm. in the role of responsible for the well-being of others, and at that moment cannot separate themselves enough from that task to be able to become playful and enter themselves. So the very things that nurture love sometimes stifle desire. I heard you say as well that idea of caretaking and neediness being sort of a shutdown. Mm -hmm. And I find that so interesting. And I think that a lot of mothers that I've spoken to, a lot of stay-at-home mothers that might not earn their own money and they're reliant a lot upon their husbands, they feel this loss of power and then sometimes there starts to be this gap between the two of them and it's the woman desiring something else and then maybe the husband as well because he sees his wife in the position that that love and that desire between the two of them seems to have kind of fallen. Have you seen a lot of that in your experience? I wrote an entire book about it. (laughs) Mating in captivity is all about understanding yes. the dilemmas of desire in long-term relationships. Yes. But I will answer it to you like this. I took a question around the world for the last 15 years, and I have yet to hear something different. And the question was, I find myself most drawn to my partner when? Mm. And I asked it in multiple cultures. And there were literally four groups of answers all the time. 
And that's when I began with this issue of the caretaking. It didn't just appear out of nowhere. It's because I kept listening. People would say, I'm most drawn to my partner when I see them in their element, when I admire them, when they're, in, they're doing something that they are passionate about. When they're, and the passionate can be on the horse, on the beach, on the stage, you name it. And all of it was when I see my partner radiant, mm. thriving, and their otherness is momentarily defined in front of me. They are self-sustaining. They're self-sufficient. They don't need anything from me. And in that moment, there is this energy between me and them. I'm drawn to them. I'm attracted to that person. Mm. There is never caretaking in that scenario. Caretaking is deeply loving, but it is an anti-aphrodisiac because you are in touch with the fragility of the other person. And desire and lust yeah. involve a loss of control. They involve letting go. And in order to let go, you need to feel that this person here is steady. Then you can do this. But if this person falls also, then there's nothing holding you back. Yes. Now on the woman, is the most interesting one. If I work with straight couples, it is very common that you will hear a man say, nothing turns me on more than to see her turned on. <laughs> that makes sense. Okay? Yeah. A giving, generous partner will often say that. I have never heard a woman say that. Ali, not never. Yeah. I've rarely heard. Nothing turns me on more than to see him turned on is rather irrelevant for her. What turns her on is her own turn on. Wow, why is that? Because in f desire for the woman or female sexuality at that moment demands a certain amount of narcissism in the best sense of the word. It demands her ability to be self-focused. If she's thinking of the little ones, if she's thinking about the partner, if she's thinking about her sense of responsibility and caretaking, she cannot disconnect enough to connect with herself in the presence of this other person. So this de-erotization that you're talking about with the women yeah. who are continuously defined by what they do for everybody else and don't have much agency, it's not just the fact of going into the world and making their own money. It's that this being outside in the world with agency calls upon completely different parts of yourself. Yes. And those become connected with the erotic charge. What turns her on is what is happening to her. And in order for that to happen, she needs to be able to focus on herself. And that's what happens when she's out in the world doing her stuff. That makes so like much sense. Like you right here, right now. It, well, it's that whole Viktor Frankl about purpose and meaning is what made some people last in the camps. Having that outside of your children and looking after a house and caretaking, it does, it gives you this sense of feeling that you're helping others but you're doing also something for yourself that gives you purpose and meaning in your life. Yep. I want to talk about infidelity mm -hmm. and... I wonder with the patients that have come into your care, 
why do you see it occur? And I feel that for a while, people thought it was always the males that were the ones that were having affairs. But we now know that there is a lot of women that are having affairs as well. And I'm sure it potentially is equal. Why do you think that occurs? Affairs? Yeah. Well, first of all, who have the men been having affairs with? Mm-hmm. This idea that it was only the men. <laughs> That's so true. You know. The penny just dropped then. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Some of them may have gone to other men, but many of them went to other yes. women, right? Affairs have always existed. They have been part of the story of marriage. Transgression, infidelity. It was indeed primarily a privilege of men because they were more protected. Because women were possession of men, they were the property of men, and so were the children, and she had everything to lose. And women have rarely done what they wanted, they have done what would keep them safe, and still do so in the majority of the world. So the rate of female infidelity goes up when women become more equal and able to take care of themselves mm-hmm. and are protected by law and are not going to lose everything and become destitute. Yes. That's what changes the rate of female infidelity. Economic independence, legal protections. Affairs occur for a host of reasons. Some of them are connected to the relationship. Loneliness, number one. Sexlessness, indifference, chronic bickering, lack of joy, in neglect, um, contempt, all the reasons that make people want to flee. Mm-hmm. So you have a whole range of infidelities that are a reaction to discontents in the relationship. And then you have a whole other type of infidelity that may have very little to do with the relationship, that is much more rooted in an individual's experience of absence and of longing. One of the most interesting things that I learned after 10 years of working primarily with couples and and families with infidelity is the fact that it happens in good relationships too. It happens in happy couples too. Really? Yes. That sometimes when a person goes elsewhere, they're not just because going elsewhere because they want to leave the person that they are with, but sometimes it's because they want to leave the person that they have themselves become. And it's not so much that they're going to look for someone else as much as they're going to look for another self or other parts of themselves that have been lost. That woman that is at home, that has been caring for her children, that is just the mother, the wife, that has not thought about herself for God knows how long, sometimes finds herself one day yearning to once again bring back the woman behind the mother. Mm. And she's not rejecting her life She just yearns to bring back a part of her life, of herself, that she doesn't know how to integrate in the life that she has created. And that's a whole other range of affairs. But the important part of this, when you ask the question, why do people have affairs, is to not think that this is something that is happening in a few places, just only. Uh, About 85% of us have been affected by the experience of infidelity. Mm. As the children of a parent who was unfaithful 
or as the child of an illicit relationship or as one of the three protagonists in the adulterous triangle or as the friend that is participating in a drama. It's not an unknown story. And so I think most importantly for me in writing a book about infidelity, which was in a way writing a book about what happens when desire goes looking elsewhere, yeah. is to say this is gutting, this is beyond painful, and we need a different conversation that is going to help the millions of us who are affected by it. To just be black and white, judgmental, victim perpetrator is really not helpful to so many of us. Do you think people can repair from infidelity? Couples can repair from it and live together happy, joyous relationships after? Or I know that trust is obviously a huge thing in anyone's relationship with a friend as well. Once that is severed, can it be replenished again? Some affairs will kill a relationship that was already dying on the vine and some affairs will be the most powerful alarm system that will jolt a couple out of a state of complacency and laziness and finally make it realize that it stands to lose way more than it wanted to. And so, yes, there are people who come out of an affair and they will tell you this was the worst day of our life, but it changed us and it brought us on a track and we are a much better couple today and more honest today than we ever were. Mm. That is, of course, the better outcome that we wish for many people. I would hope that more people would actually experience that. But sometimes it's irretrievable and too many broken pieces and you can't piece them back together. The rebuilding of the trust is really not just about you won't do this again. Because the majority of people who come to therapy around affairs are people who have been faithful and monogamous for years. Really? Five, 10, 25 years. The majority are not chronic philanderers. And the chronic philanderers have other issues. So you ask yourself always, why would a person cross a line that they never thought they would cross for a glimmer of what when they risk losing everything they spend a lifetime building? Why? Right? That's the original question for me. When I wrote The State of Affairs, sorry, it was about that. Why do people go you know, to that place where everything they worked for, everything they they labored so hard to build could be... And then you want to know that trust is not just the promise of not breaching out again. Trust is that you really experience a deep valuing of the relationship. And the person who is unfaithful sometimes trashed the relationship. And that's often the case when there's no rebuilding possible. But often, the person who also had an affair is the one who's been yearning for you to finally pay attention to them, Mm. listen to them, kiss them on occasion, touch them, make love to them, treasure them. And that's when I came up with the second big finding in the book, which is that the victim of the affair is not always the victim of the marriage. Oh, it gives me shivers. It's so true. You said something last night about our phones are the closest thing to us, and I suppose if they are and that you're trying to engage with your partner and they're constantly working or on their phone, those people who are loving, happy, may 
look for an affair because their self-esteem is low and they just want to feel like they're acknowledged and attractive. And I prefer to look at it slightly different, which is to say that relational betrayal comes in many forms. Decades of neglect and indifference and criticism and poor treatment is also a betrayal. Yes. Then we are talking about, it's not just, oh, I felt bad about myself and I needed, so, yeah. I needed someone to laugh at my jokes, yeah. you know, yes. and I needed a little boost, because then it looks very trite. Yes. And there, are, there is that too. But, in, but if you really are going to go in the depth of what allows a couple to rebuild, it is also to understand, you know, how they came to a place where at the heart of affairs you will see lying, deception, betrayal, violations of trust. But at the heart of affairs you also see longing and yearning for connection, for aliveness, for intimacy. From your experience, what makes a good relationship? Many, many different things, really. I mean, I'm asked this question every night yeah. on this uh, Australian tour right now, and I could answer it differently every night, you know? Um, because what makes a good relationship is different for different people because they have different needs, yeah. first of all. So there isn't a one-size-fits-all. I think we really have to be careful to not think, yes. what makes a good tomato soup? Yeah. You want a few basic ingredients that you know, a good ripe tomato, lush tomato that has a lot of taste will be different than a can. There's a few basic things you know. But for the rest, how you play with this spice or that spice, relationships has a bit of that too. You need some core features. And then around that, you play with all the other ingredients and you mix and match and you change them in the course of a life. So what makes a great relationship, number one, is the ability to change. Mm to be flexible, to be adaptive to the new reality. The new reality may be we just moved in, you just had your mother come in, we're in a lockdown, we've had a third child, I have a new career, we're going to another country, you got sick. Whatever is the ingredients that reality throws into your relationship, you know, and that adaptation is really, really important. I think that admiration goes a long way. Mm. You notice couples where one person talks about their partner with admiration and you know that the uh, admiration also means that you're usually quite pleased to wake up with them in the morning. <laughs> what makes a good relationship? I just spoke with somebody just before coming here and who was telling me, uh, having come to the event last night, I have a lot of work to do. I realized that I've been projecting on my partner the things that I experienced with my father. And I often do this and this and this. And I just said, have you ever told this to your partner? This is 16 years into yeah. it. Because just the act of acknowledging, I know that I, there are things I do which are painful, frustrating, upsetting, undermine our relationship. The ability to take responsibility and ownership over the things that we bring is huge. Mm. Because when I bring this to you and I say, you know, I know that I'm sometimes really harsh and critical and whatever you do, I barely notice, but whatever you don't do, I make a big fuss about. And that sometimes is not fair but I come with a story, et cetera, et cetera, that that makes the other person 
A, feel that we're living in a shared reality, that you see what you do to me, and I don't have to be the one always telling you. You know that I know that you know. And that you're willing to do something to make it better because yeah. I don't like it. A good relationship is when you do plenty for the other person just because it's the other person and not because you particularly care about it, but you care about them. A good relationship is where people laugh hmm. and are able to have perspective on stuff. A good relationship is a relationship that has a constantly fluid balance between what is together and what is separate, what is autonomous and what is interdependent. You know, where one can say to the other person, go do your thing and have a great time. A good relationship is where people communicate without blame and defensiveness all the time. Mm. A good relationship is a relationship that can fight and then also make up. But they need to know to fight and they need to fight. Fighting is important. Why? Why? Because it's energy. Yeah. Because it's friction. Force as well. People fight much of the time because they care. I'm not talking about all kind of fighting. But a lot of the fighting is, I'm asking this again because I really care. In many instances, you kind of say, the day you're not fighting anymore, you're done. But there's a better way to be connected and to experience heat than through friction. Or there's a better kind of friction than the hostile friction. Yes. So it's a beautiful thing about relationship that actually there's many things And I can give you what the research says and how it studied this thing versus that thing. But I think the nicest question is to ask a couple, what makes your relationship a good relationship? My partner has my back. I can trust them. Mm. He makes me laugh when I'm in the midst of... Argh. They are a good person. They're kind. They've been so good to my mother. Whatever. I feel safe here, or I can be bold here, yes. or I get a partner who pushes me all the time. Yesterday I asked a question, the person that challenges me most, and quite a few people said themselves, but many of them said my partner, and they took the word challenge me in, in the positive. Yes, they push me around, across a line, they make me be bold, they give me the confidence I lack sometimes. You know, or they keep me behind the line when I'm about to cross it. Mm. They have a positive power over me or toward me. You've spoken about having a lot of teachers yourself, especially in the early days, and you speak to a lot of people. What's the best advice that you have ever been given? I'm given advice every day. Yeah. I'm an advice seeker. Yes. I make my decisions with a lot of consultation and... I think some of the best advice I get is when people remind me what is the goal? What am I going for? And help me not get too distracted. The best advice is when people say, have you ever considered that? And they're taking me three steps ahead of mm. where I had imagined I could be. It's when they expand the visions for me. Mm. And I think that that's been like that since I was a teenager. You know, as a kid, I would go to camp. And in, in camp in Belgium, at the end of camp, everybody would write little messages to people. And your youth counselors and the other people would send you these. And recently I found a box of these messages of what people would write to me that I kept at the end of... And so much of the time it was about you have a lot of ideas but you lack confidence. 
you know. You. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that these messages were so perceptive. They just really understood something that I was more bold than many. So what may have been lack of confidence for me is still plenty for, in the general sense. But they always said, you could do this if you only believed in yourself more. And, you know, at this point, I'm pretty much at the believing of myself. <laughs> I wanted to say, you've got your new card game mm -hmm. and it is so divine. Where should we begin? Mm -hmm. And I wanted to know, can I ask you a question or you pick? It's my first time will be like a tarot reader. Shall I say something about what it is? Yes, please so do. Tell, a... You started this in lockdown. The yes. idea came in lockdown. So I'd love you to talk about why that came to you then. So there's two moments. Yeah. The first moment is I'm in lockdown. You have been in lockdown here in Melbourne. You know the story. We know a lot about lockdown. I get a video and I get these little kids and they're playing. And they're playing that they're running in a river and they're chasing away to go hide in a castle. But the river is made up of rocks and the rocks are the books and the pillows are the castles. And, and I'm looking at this whole thing and I'm thinking, wow, freedom in confinement comes from our imagination. Yeah. That is the imagination as Eros. And as aliveness, as playfulness, as curiosity. And play is what helps us transcend the limit of reality. And I'm thinking this is for them, this is true for us too. How do we remain curious with the people that we're living with day in, day out? How do we remain curious even about ourselves? How do we hear new stories? How do we ask good questions to people we just met so that we actually get to learn things about them that we would never have imagined like the 4,000 people did yesterday yeah. in the theater? Stories is the way we tell about our life. Relationships are stories. Stories are bridges for connection. And curiosity is the essential element here. And in relationships, much of our work is about taking people who are reactive and turning them into being curious. Wow. So the game creates a safe container for this, where you can experiment, where you can tell stories. Because you're playing, you, you're, you're in a whole different frame than if you are in a yes. literal conversation. And so when I watch parents play with kids, and I see these kids be able to say things to their parents that they would never say in normal circumstances, but because they're playing... They get to tell the story. When I see people on the first date, when I see couples who are bored with each other and could really use a new conversation with some fresh air, the card game mm. creates all of those opportunities, including at work in a team yes. that wants to get to know each other. And it's all in the questions. Well, the as an interviewer, I know that as well. <laughs> Even when I get interviewed, I always think to myself, it is, your answers are in the questions. So the questions have to be good and can take it to an absolute new level. When we talk about imagination, when I interviewed that Holocaust survivor, she was six when she was in the camps. And I remember she said to me, she used to imagine herself back in Poland yes. and the fun times that she had with her parents. And she used to just sit there thinking about that and just recreating that in her mind while she was in the camp. And she said that was what was able to get her through as well. Right. 
So, so this so is what I mean, that the central agent of eroticism is in our imagination. Yeah. It is true when you are in camp. It is true when you are trapped in a relationship. It is true in lockdown. It is true when you're trapped in a story and in a way of telling about your life when it's time to change. We have the capacity to anticipate and to project and to see ourselves, even when it's not happening, but experience it as if it was happening. Yeah. It's so powerful. All right, Esther. Hmm. <laughs> oh, a rule I secretly love to break. Oh. <laughs> I'm a brick rule breaker, period. So it, there's no specific one. And it's not always even secret. Um, <laughs> I love I, it. It's not even secret. <laughs> it's not even secret. I find rule breaking very, very freeing because the only One of the main times I know that I'm doing what I want is when I'm doing something I'm not supposed to do. Yeah. So if it's about eating something I shouldn't be eating or staying up three hours late when I have to get up the next morning early because that's what a responsible you know, professional would do. Or any time I actually have a little rule in my own head and then I say, eh. I find the transgression liberating, empowering and freeing. I love that. And very playful yes. for that matter. I'm like you. I like to break rules as well. And I don't mean it in a negative way, like I'm always looking to break rules, but I have this thing with authority sometimes. I don't like authority. And even though I'm very respectful towards it, I always question things. And I think that's why I ended up in the profession I did. I'd always go out and question why things are. And I think in that sense, just because people say we should do something, I don't always think that that's and the... And do you think that that's connected to your grandfather? Potentially, yes. I, I, think, it, I think it probably is. Because he came from a time yeah. when people did what they were told to do and it wasn't the right thing. Yes. And I've always probably charged my own path and been able to get there by not always doing what people say. And yeah, that's, I've never actually thought about it like that. So that's unbelievably interesting. I wonder, Esther, our final question, what is a life of greatness to you? I always thought as a child that I would do something big. Big as in that it would make a difference, that it would matter. Because I felt that I was alive when the rest of my family had been decimated and I had to kind of live for all the ones that hadn't had a chance. So I had this idea that my life couldn't be mediocre or small or not noticeable. I didn't know what it would look like. And I dreamed as a child, I fantasized a lot of these stories of doing something big that would make it feel like I had claimed my place on this earth to make up for all the dead ones. And today I would say it's, I mean, being in front of 4,000 people and creating an intimate conversation about relationships that is honest, that asks the deep questions and that is light at the mm. same time, deep and light and provocative and probing. Um, to come to Australia And to realize that people have been listening to the podcast, Where Should We Begin? Or to read my book or to read the blog. That's a life of greatness. It's yeah. like, how did these people on the other side of the planet, 
you know, has, have spent so much time with me, have been listening to me, find what I say valuable, use it to improve their relationships, and then come with my family and my team and meet my friends here. I feel like it's abundant. It's playful. It's rich in that sense. I consider that greatness. Esther Perel, I always knew this about you, but I saw last night this hunger, these people coming to watch you and hanging on your every word, but doing it in a way because you provide so much to people who are sometimes longing for something in their life, in their relationships, and you've always done it in a way that is so tasteful, so easy to understand and thought-provoking to so many people. And honestly, you have changed the life of thousands, millions, I'm sure, of people out there. So for that, I say thank you very much and thank you for the wonderful chat today. Thank you so much. Pleasure. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.